for me. Sure. My name is Rachel Adams. And you're currently at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. Yes, that's correct. And what's your role there? I'm the chief curator and director of programs. And how does one become such a position? Oh, good question. Well, lots of hard work, I would say. I started at Bemis in fall of 2018. Previous to that, I was the senior curator of exhibitions at the university at Buffalo Art Galleries, which is the university, basically the museum space in Buffalo. And before that, I was independent for a little bit. Previous to that, I was a curator in Austin at what is now the Contemporary. So many years of sort of, you know, working in various locations. My background is more curatorially focused, but here at BMS, I'm also the director of the residency program, as well as uh, our new sound program. So I handle kind of exhibitions, all public programs and the residency, and of course have an amazing team that helps facilitate everything and get everything done. So We actually sort of uh, crossed paths at one point. Uh, We both went to the San Francisco Art Institute. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. When When did you graduate? I graduated in 2010. Okay, I'm older than you. That's fine. <laughs> I got my master's there, so. Me too. Yeah, very good. What, what was your discipline? I was in the, the MA program, which was pretty recent. I was the third class to graduate. So technically, my degree is exhibition and museum studies. But at that point, the degrees were really together. You know, our cohort, my especially my year, was very small. I think there was only seven of us. So... They had an MA in urban studies and also an MA in history and theory of contemporary art. And really like all of those overlapped, at least for me specifically, what I was working on. So yeah, but exhibition and museum studies is technically what is on my CV and on my diploma. All right. I got new genres. Uh, Yes, that was a great, I mean, you know, all the programs there were great and, you know, hopefully we'll continue. I don't sort of unclear of what's happening right now, but. Looks like they're having classes in the fall, so I'm not sure. I'm sure they'll work it out. I'm not too concerned about them. Yeah. I love residencies. Please tell me about the residency program at Bemis. You're my first guest ever from a residency program, and I've been talking about residencies for over a year now. So please enlighten us about the the program at Bemis in particular. Sure. Yeah. Well, we are almost 40 years old next year. We originally started as sort of an arts and industry residency, I would say. Another really great arts and industry residency is at the Kohler in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. So that could be a really interesting one for you to look into. But basically, you know, our mission is to give artists time and space and resources so that they can do whatever they want and support. So we do three sessions per year between two and three months each. All the artists come at the same time. So it's sort of you're in a cohort. We have usually 10 to 12 residents here at a time. And as I said, they have their own really large studio space. That's a live workspace. So full kitchen, full bathroom, you know, lots of furniture that they can grab from our fourth floor. We call it the thrift store. And then they have access to our 9,000 square foot fabrication building. So called Okada. 
I think we started working in there with residents maybe in 2012 after we did some renovations. It was gifted to us. It's just right across the street. So we sort of have a two-building campus. And so they have 24-hour access to that seven days a week, which has wood shop and ceramics, welding, mold making areas, you know, spray booth, and then just lots of space. It's, it, we keep it fairly open and flexible so artists can kind of do what they want. So I've seen people build gigantic, you know, sets in there for films and obviously small ceramics. And it's really just sort of multi-purpose and it's a really great space. So there's that. And recently in 2019, we launched a new sound art and experimental music program which sort of is slightly embedded in the residency. So now we're inviting one artist that's specific to sound art or experimental music per year. And we'll start doing an open call for that. Our artists in residence is usually an open call, but since it was a new program, we're just sort of getting it off the ground first. So we actually just built a huge, what I'm sitting in our kind of our dead room, our recording studio, and there's a rehearsal space as well. So all residents have access to that, but specifically the sound artists in residence, you know, kind of gets dibs at this point. And we also built a live venue. That's kind of a new addition that obviously any resident, you know, if they're interested in using to film in, it's this really kind of funky space in our basement called Low End. And then we put on two shows per month approximately, which we've been doing virtually, obviously, for the past several months. But really focusing on experimental music, sound art, and that sort of genre. So that's, you know, I mean, the residency program is, again, really like a space for people to, you know, to explore what they're doing, to experiment, to, you know, make lifelong friends and and collaborations even. You know, we've definitely had people come here separately and leave being like, oh, we're going to be working together for a long time, you know. We are really invested in our alumni, not only our residence alumni, but also our exhibiting alumni because Bemis has an exhibition space on our first floor. So we've just launched an alumni program also in the beginning of 2019, which allows artists to reapply for a shorter period of time for the residency. So we just closed that open call yesterday, I believe. And we're looking forward to welcoming our first alumni artist back in this fall. And then we'll have three next year because of COVID. We had to postpone Jenny, who was supposed to come this summer. So they'll come for four to six weeks as opposed to two to three months and have actually extra funding, a material stipend. All of our residencies are funded in terms of they're free to attend. And then we give a $1,000 stipend per artist as well as travel, you know, stipends. So sort of how to get here, obviously. We're in the middle of the country in, you know, the United States. So some people drive, some people fly. We have a car that people can use and, you know, share so that they can go get groceries and go to all of the hardware stores and go to all of the amazing thrift stores that we have here in Omaha. But of course, then, you know, people always do end up driving and things like that too. We're located in a 120,000 square foot building from the 1880s. So it's a big warehouse building that has five floors. And most of that space, or I would say a good portion of that space, is dedicated to the residency. So we have the studios. We have installation spaces on our third and our fifth floor. And our fourth floor, half of it is dedicated to just like, it's like a resource. We call it a thrift store. It's kind of like a resource library, right? So there's furniture, there's more desks, there's there's a piano, there's, you know, you know, there's more 
cups and kitchen utensils and stuff if you want to throw sort of a big dinner party with everybody. But there's also just like so many random things that we get donated that we sort of sort through and put up there for artists to use. So it always happens that a resident usually during each session will find some some amazing gem in there and incorporate it into their practice. Since we're international, we like to have that space for people just to kind of, you know, maybe get your juices flowing as you as you get here too, if you're coming from, you know, from a different country and you're not necessarily yet like figuring out, oh God, I have to go to the art store and I have to do this and I have to do this. It's kind of like, just go up there and, you know, just pull out what you want and, and see if something like gels so okay just to be clear you all are a 501c3 yes nonprofit. Yes. we are a nonprofit. yes i saw you had a board of directors but i just want to clarify that yeah we have a um, um, really amazing board of directors actually and yeah it's a really lovely a lovely institution wonderful staff some of which have been here for you know over a decade and some are pretty brand new so it's a really nice mix of people, um, lots of artists on staff too. So that always helps, you know, in terms of being able to have conversations with the artists and residents and also talk about opportunities and the community in Omaha and what's happening here on the ground, because we do have a lot of residents that come in and really want to sort of integrate for a few months and, you know, learn what's happening here and obviously go see things. We have a lot of partnerships with other local organizations, both arts organizations and even like some tech organizations. So our residents can go and use their equipment, you know, things that we cannot provide just because of obviously budget and space, but also just, you know, that's not our focus, right? But we can go down the street and use the CNC router at the community college or something like that, or the 3D printer. So nice. All right. My big thing about residencies, uh, just to be clear, like, I love residencies. I'm all for them. So any question I'm about to do is simply because I want to know more, not because mm -hmm. I'm questioning them or saying anything negative. So bear with me. Okay. Okay. When somebody applies, like my big question is about the application mm -hmm. like process. So like how should somebody create their application because i'm always concerned like when i write an application process for a residency i'm i'm like i, I have no idea what i'm going to make six months or a year from now and it's a very intimidating and mm -hmm. scary process because i'm always afraid like i mean and don't get me wrong so this is me just <laughs> giving you my concerns when i write it what I'm concerned that like, if I write, oh, I want to do X, Y, Z, and then come the time when I get to the residency, I've either changed the topic or changed the medium or whatever, like mm -hmm. something's changed. I'm scared that they're going to like get, you know, disappointed or upset or like, you know, that I didn't fulfill my application, even though a certain amount of time has, exp you know, gone on since then. So like, how do you how do you gauge an application with the understanding that it's possible that the artist might not still be making the same thing by the time they get there? It's a really good question. And I don't know how other residencies do it, but at Bemis, we do not hold you to what you apply for. So you can do whatever you want. You can sit in your room, you know, in your studio the whole time and watch movies. And if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. Okay. No, within that though, like, so like, when somebody does a residency at Bemis, what is the 
completed residency expectations so is there the expectation of a show a project a something something completed or is it just time and time away from life in order to possibly reflect so like is that an option versus production Definitely. It's a no expectation residency, which I think makes it really exciting for people because a lot of times they will, you know, go to a place and they'll have six weeks and they have to have produced a work or produced a program or, you know, any of these things. Of course, you know, we do do lots of programs and everything is voluntary. Nothing is required, but we always have an open studios, which happens usually the last few weeks of the residency. And that's one of our biggest events, like each session per year, we usually get like around 300 people through the building. We open the entire building. We do, you know, workshop. We were having artists present first and then you could go up to their studios, but we've sort of separated those out now. So now we sort of have two residency events. We have one kind of a meet and greet within the first few weeks where you can come and we have a big, you know, potluck. Again, hopefully we'll be able to do these things at some point. And each artist does, you know, sort of a five-minute talk about their work. And so you get to learn who the artist is, learn what their work is within the first few weeks that they're here. Maybe some connections are made in terms of, oh, like, you know, somebody comes and, you know, one of the artists is really wanting to investigate something that's very specific to Omaha and that person knows about it and, you know, they can talk. It's great. And then we do the open studios sort of at the end of the residency, you know, with about two weeks left so that people can see what's been happening in the studio. And again, that's totally a choice. Some people choose to participate, but don't even open their studio. They might install work, you know, in another part of the building. They might do a performance. It's usually a really fun time. In the summer, we always have ice cream from our place down the street that, you know, give, makes famous flavors for us. And it's super great to, you know, be able to open up the whole building because really it is a private space for the most part, except for our our exhibition space and our venue. So people get really excited, like, what is this building? You know, like we see there's things going on there, but it's a way for the community to really meet people and and see what see what's been happening here. So that's really great. But no, we don't require anything. Applications, you know, we do ask what might be your plan while you're working here. But again, we don't hold you to that. I think our jurying process is that we don't actually have any staff that picks people. Uh, we we select panelists, a really diverse group of panelists from around the world to review the applications. There's two rounds. So there's sort of an online round, first round, and then those selections are kind of whittled down to an in-person jury that meets here at BMS so that they can really get a sense of the space, see the studios, maybe even meet current residents. If they're here, we try to sort of intersect that. And then then the artists are selected from that from that group that's been whittled down from the first round. But, you know, again, we we might talk about, oh, this person has applied before, you know, but really like it's staff has really a hands-off in choosing, which we think is really important that there's multiple voices that are bringing, um, bringing the artists here. So that's, that's sort of, if that answers your question a little bit more about. Partly, I'll refine it a little bit okay. more. So when an application is put in so that I'm, Pardon, I didn't like do the research on your actual mm -hmm. application process, but the uh, you know generally it's a series of work and some text basically. Mm -hmm. So like the question that I always wonder is like what of the two, what's more important or what's sort of the first round? Because I imagine from the side of the the re reviewers that it's sort of 
image first. And if the images are interesting, then they'll read the text. But if the images aren't interesting, they won't maybe necessarily go to the text kind of thing. So like, what's the, you know, what's the criteria for like, are you looking for people who already have, okay. Yeah. Secondary part of this. Mm -hmm. So like emerging artists, mid-career artists, sort of, you know, know, uh, full career. I don't know know what the last Late career, I think. Late career. Okay. Sort of like, yeah, prestigious career. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like what, what range of, of sort of artists, uh, careers do you generally have as your, your residence? Okay. So to answer the first part of your question, I would say, you know, and again, this is just my own personal experience of being a juror for applications in other places, but I always, you know, especially as a curator, I always look right at the work and the work samples. I always encourage people to submit all the work samples. You know, if there's, if you have, we always ask for 10. So if there's 10 spots, please submit 10 work samples. You know, even if one is a detail, because you might not have 10 specific projects that you want to show, fill that right away. That's really important. Okay, within that, I'm mm-hmm. going to keep like getting yeah, more, no, and more Dave, detailed Dave, questions. Fine, like yeah. the is, it, do you seek a cohesive body of work or sort of a spectrum of their entire career? I, I can't remember exactly what's in the language, but I think we ask for like maybe the last five to seven years of work. You know, we really want to see what's current. I would say because some people are working on a series that is ten years long, right? You know, it's it's timely in that way. So it's still obviously being worked on, but it might have started 10 years ago and that's fine. But we really are trying to look at what's been, what's been happening in the studio for the past several years. So that's definitely important. But if there is a project that has that sort of spurred that work and that's older, you know, that makes sense to kind of put into, and that can kind of be talked about in the descriptions of each work sample because we allow for descriptive text for each work sample and then we have an overall you know artistic practice and then plan for bemis you know that's sort of the the text pieces that kind of come into come into that okay because i do online portfolio reviews Mm -hmm. and so like i'm always having issues of that balance of like quality of image, quality of title, caption, description, and then artist statement, bio, like a lot of artists are generally, you know, very good at creating visual things, whatever they make, or, and then they're maybe not as strong with the, the other stuff or, or they often get too heavy into process mm-hmm. description versus concept concept or engaging description. Sort of like sort of a, uh, yeah. So like, what are you looking for? Like, so when you're lo- reading, do you want to know what mediums are they using? What processes are they doing? Or sort of more about the, why did they create this particular work? I would say it's a balance for me, particularly, you know, it's, it's, I know it's hard, but at least I think with work samples for us, when you input the information, we use slide room, you can, you know, you have the caption and the year and the medium and even the duration, if it's something, you know, that's time-based. And then in the description, you can really talk about the concept and, and maybe even the process a little bit. So there's plenty of space to have all of that information in our work samples when you apply for BMS. I would say, you know, personally, yeah, it's it's really trying to find that balance. My largest issue sometimes with applications and looking at work samples is when it's really obscure and I'm like, what am I looking at? Because obviously you have to think these people are reviewing this on a screen. They're not seeing it in real life. So they're not able to stand in the space and, you know, respond to it with 
their body in the same way that when you made it or when you displayed it, people were. So it's sort of thinking about like, always thinking about documentation. <laughs> is there, You know, this is such an important part, especially now with being so virtual, even in the before times. But, you know, especially now thinking like, okay, this is very clear, you know, what I'm showing this person, what I what they're seeing on the screen, they can understand what they're seeing, and they can read the description, and it reinforces what they're seeing. And, and then they can understand what my what my process was, what the concept is behind this work, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm a photographer is my background. So documentation, I'm absolutely obsessed about. I've heard stories about people in the past, um, when they apply for residencies, that they don't get them and that the residency uh, location actually likes it when people continually reapply year after year. So I, I particularly, there's one I know of in Norway that basically they won't even actually look at accepting you until you've applied three years in a row. Well, we don't do it like that for sure. We of course have people that reapply and they might get in the second or third time because we switch the jury every time. So it really also is dependent on who's on the jury, which of course we don't release that information until after everybody has been picked. So, but we, again, like I said, we really try to diversify the jury there's always artists, there's alums of the program, there's curators, art historians, professors. They're based all over the world. And so we really try to, every time, really make it a good mix of people from geographically as well as within their career and all of these different things. And that's also what we're kind of looking at for Bemis. You know, we really are looking to have a group here that can you know, maybe teach each other, inform each other, you know, we want to, we don't want to just have 10 painters, and they're all in their studios, and they're not talking to each other in in a way, or, you know, I'm I'm not saying that painters don't talk to each other. But you know, what I mean, it's sort of we're really looking to have like people that are working across the board and all different kinds of medium that might be in, you know, you asked again, now I'm remembering, you know, what we're looking for in terms of where they are in their career. You know, we've had artists come right out of grad school that have been accepted. You know, their work is really strong. And we've had artists that are in much in the later part of their career. So it's totally dependent. And like I said, we, we like to have a range of people here at a time, again, from all different areas of the world. And so it's, we want to have that diversity within the program because we have such interesting space and such large space that of course people that want to work large really can and people that even might not want to work large but get here and they're like oh my god I have so much space I can either make a lot of things or I can you know finally like work large I thought about it 10 years ago and now I have the space to do it so you know we're really here to just help facilitate and support you and and hopefully also the people that are here with you are like I had mentioned are going to you know be really supportive and, you know, become close friends and allies and maybe even collaborators. And I've been here through now, I guess, almost six sessions of residence. And every time the group is super strong and close knit, you know, they have weekly dinners, they go out, they do critiques with each other, they do studio visits. It's, you know, they obviously keep in touch afterwards. And it's really great because, you never know because the people that are picking them, some of them, you know, you might, oh, you know, oh, yeah, of course I know that artist's work or, oh, I just, you know, did a studio visit with that artist randomly. So, but you never know that, that everyone is going to get along and that it just always happens. I don't know. It's just the magic of Bemis, I think. Lovely. Yeah. 
I hope to someday participate in that. But one thing I have about the process of applying, and this is not just residencies, this is grants and all this kind of stuff. And so this is not particular to Bemis. So mm -hmm. I just want to make that clear, but this is just overall. Artists or creative people often have to make these applications and they have to write these things and all this, and they go through all this effort and then they go through the process and then they basically only receive one of two things, yes or no but they don't get feedback about what they either didn't do well or they did wrong or they, you know, I mean, outside of the obvious of like, they missed a part of the application, but like, right. but the, you know, like we, as people who put in these applications, it's really difficult to learn when we do things wrong, how to do them better next time. I'm not asking for you to give feedback, but like maybe some, some, some experiences you've had the, of the things that people do wrong. I hate to say wrong, but like wrong. Um, that they that is uh, common or has happened a number of times that maybe you can give as advice for people to help to try and give basically some general feedback on how people could better apply. Sure, you know, and I of course that is always an issue. Even when I apply for things, you know, which is something that I you know continue to do, but you know, you always are like, oh, I really wish I, you know, or when we apply for grants, we always ask, try to ask for feedback if if there's a, uh, an inkling that maybe you can, right? <laughs> so I think that, you know, again, I'm going to stress documentation. I think that's always one of the things that's really important. I think really trying to learn a little bit about what the program is and maybe the work that has, you know, been in previously accepted into it before is always helpful to look at, you know, who, who are the artists that have been here before, who are the artists that have gotten that grant before, really reading the, the guidelines and, or, you know, the, you know, what the prompts are and, you know, really thinking those through. And I, you know, personally, it's relying on, either, you know, friends or colleagues to, to help you maybe copy edit or read your work and be like, you know what, actually that sentence just doesn't make sense. And if somebody that doesn't know you is really not going to understand what you're talking about, like, can you make it clearer? You know, I think what I always talk about when I go visit, you know, MFA programs and BFA programs is like, utilize your your resources and utilize your, you know, your friends and your cohort, you know, help each other out, right? Like if there's a really great photographer that can take documentation of your work and make it look amazing, you know, maybe you can buy them a dinner or, you know, there's an exchange that you can do. Maybe you give them a piece of artwork, right? Like it's something that I think is really important. And I think, you know, that happens here too. When, when people are in residence with each other, it's like we had this poet in residence, you know, a few years ago. And I think she really helped some of the artists like with their statements, right? You know, like just because of the way that she creates language. And so it's kind of really, I think it's a great way to, you know, rely, you rely on people and people rely on you back. And so, so I would stress definitely more eyes on your application, you know, not leaving it to the last minute. So you're asking people <laughs> the last minute to to review things and then you're up until, you know, the minute before it's due. So that's something, you know, we have our applications are open for a long time, I think like three or four months. So you have plenty of time to, to be on our mailing list and you get that email that it's, it's open and okay, you know, open it up, really look at it, spend some time with it, ask people to help you review it. Because that's, I think you can sometimes as a reviewer, you can see, oh, this person like quickly did this. It just seems might seem sloppy, 
so that's definitely something that I would, um, you know, documentation and, and more eyes on on applications. Okay, just to be clear on the documentation, mm-hmm. basically you mean don't take pictures with your cell phone. You know, it's get up professional equipment, professionally lit, you know, like, you know, don't do crowd shots of an opening kind of thing. Like, right, I mean, it yeah. It really should I w- be... You know, the kind of stuff you would want to put in a catalog or, uh, you know, uh, some sort of exhibition brochure. Right. Yeah, or on your website, right? You, you definitely want your work to be in the best light. And not to say that, I mean, I think, you know, certain iPhones have cameras that are better than, you know, some other digital cameras. So maybe it's just really, yeah, stressing the lighting or just being able, being having it be really clear what what the person is going to be looking at, you know, really see your work in the best light. So whatever that means for your work, right? Because everybody's work is different. Yeah. I'm a bit of a lighting snob having Mm -hmm. a photography background. Right. I can, yeah. So I think that's important. You know, I also think is the work samples, right? So depending on how many you get, and we can obviously use Bemis as an example, you have 10 work samples and maybe you have 10 or eight projects that you feel are like your strongest you know, does it make sense to show those eight projects or does it make sense to pick, you know, four of them and have multiple images of, you know, if it's just, if it's just one painting, maybe you have an installation shot and a detail shot, right? So people can really see the mark making of the painting. Or if it's, you know, you ha- you just had a show and all of those paintings are in it, then you have maybe two installation shots of that show and a couple of, you know, close-ups of the painting. So it's sort of like thinking about, and then maybe there's another series, right? And that's, you know, those are, you really want to pick your strongest work. And maybe sometimes your strongest work is something you made three years ago, and that's okay because for us, you know, we're, like I said, we're looking for for recent work, but it doesn't have to be, you know, yesterday. And maybe you're in the process of working on something, and that's what you can talk about in your what I'm going to plan on doing a Bemis is right now I'm focused on this, you know, and it's coming out of this most recent project that I just finished, and the documentation is here. So trying not to like show everything that you've done, you know, really like being focused on what you're, what you're submitting via your work sample. Yeah. I, I recently spoke to an arts advisor and one of her little sayings for how to write an application was basically answer the question, why me and why now? That's a really good way to do it, I think. And yeah, exactly. I'm going to write that down. It was really good. Yeah. Me, why now? I think that's great. That's great advice. Yeah, um, Amanda Marshawn. She was previous guest on the podcast. Nice. I'll have to listen to that. I don't know. I want to. I want to see your work, right? And a, a lot of times, you know, just as a, you know, sort of in my curatorial life, I, you know, I look at a lot of artists' work, right? On I look at their websites. I look at Facebook. I look or Instagram. Really, I look at. You know, I go to shows when when we could go to shows, and yeah, maybe one thing or one or two images might pull me in and then I might spend more time, you know, with you in the studio or on your website or something like that. But it's really like thinking when you're making this application, you know, what are those images that are really going to stand out and be strong and translate from what it is in the space to what, what it looks like digitally, because that's also something that's really hard sometimes is that an installation, you know, that you make that might be a room size installation is hard to sort of translate into documentation. So really like, figuring out what how to make that look look good and, and get the sense or have you know the reviewer understand what you're really going for. And maybe that might be a video, right? Like that might be 
you know, because you could definitely submit stills of an installation, but then you could have a video that's like a walkthrough and you don't have to be narrating it, but at least somebody is sort of getting the sense of like, oh, this is how it feels when I walk through this installation. So that's something that I think would always, is always good if you're, if you're an artist that does things like that. Totally random question. And I apologize if this is mm-hmm. sort of off color. Are there any sort of uh, specifications as far as like gender, sex, oh, sorry, gender and sex are the same thing gender, race, nationality? Like, do you have any sort of like, we want X percentage of this and X percentage of that? Do you have any guidelines like that, that that's sort of an internal idea? I would say internally, we just really hope to have the cohort be as diverse as possible. So that does mean, you know, we're looking at that. We do ask those questions uh, on our application. And, you know, it just sort of, it really depends again on the jurors and the jurors see that information too. So you know, we do, like I said, we do like to have this diverse group and honestly, every time it happens. So it, I think it just happens naturally within the fact that the applications that we're getting are coming from people from, you know, all different kinds of people. And so it works out for us, you know, but it's of course something that we are, are looking at and making sure that we are hitting that diversity and that equity within our program. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know as a 501c3, when you all apply for grants and things like this, they're going to ask for diversity mm-hmm. percentages and things like this. So this is right. why I'm wondering whether that trickles down in any way to the actual resident artists. Yes, it definitely does. Okay. How many people apply versus how many people receive? I've always been interested in these kinds of things because nobody tells these numbers. We usually get around a thousand applications per year for those are for three different sessions. So, you know, between 250 and 350 per session. And we accept 10 artists or, you know, it could be a collaborative because we do accept collaboratives. So like we say, between 10 and 12 artists per session. So really like 30, 30, you know, maybe 35 artists per year get in out of those thousand applications. So one in 30. Yeah get accepted mm-hmm. i'm gonna go with that's not great odds. <laughs> it's yeah i mean you know it's definitely competitive i was gonna say this is a very competitive thing so yeah okay but we do you know we do see like you had asked you know i'd mentioned about that residency saying not wanting to accept you until you've at least applied like twice or something like that you know we diff- we have had artists apply multiple times and you know they might get in on their fourth time applying because you know their work has progressed and you know the jury at that point really sees that we do mention that they've maybe gotten to the second round so that the the jurors know oh this person is serious about this so that's important too i think um information but of course in the end it's totally up to the jurors what what they want all right. Give me a little bit more about the sort of the nuts and bolts of the actual residency. So they get the, they get an apartment. You said you help with a stipend and travel and this kind of stuff. Like what, what are the actual sort of like numbers on that kind of stuff? So like. Sure. So we are residencies. So your studio is between like, I believe like 800 and 2000 square feet. So pretty large, depending on which one you get. Who decides which one you get? So we, once you're accepted, the residency team reaches out, we have a sort of incoming survey of what you're, you know, because it's been months, obviously, since you've applied. So things do change. So it's just sort of a check in with you to see what you might, you know, if it's if your plan has changed, if there's something specific you want to work on while you're here, 
what equipment you might need, you know, sort of all of these things. And we actually just started doing like a group Zoom, which we did with our incoming fall residents. So sort of just to talk through, of course, COVID things, but also just in general. And I think we're going to do that going forward. And then we also do individual like kind of, you know, video chats with everybody. And then based on what people are saying, we kind of, the residency team is Holly Cranker, who's our residency manager, Nick Witten, who's a residency arts technician, and then Andy Garlock, who's now our new sound arts technician. So really, Holly, who's been here the longest, has figures out the studio situation based on what you are kind of talking about what you need. You know, some studios have paint sinks where others don't. So, you know, it's just sort of things like that. There's only a few that don't, but, you know, or, you know, some are, we're trying to make all of our studios wheelchair accessible, but a few have bathtubs. So it just, you know, thinking about things like that too, is just making sure that we can accommodate everybody. So, you know, that sort of happens a few few weeks to a few months before you get here. And then our monthly stipend is $1,000 a month. And then um, depending on if you're an international artist or you're a domestic artist, the travel stipend is between $750 and $1,500. So that kind of is for both, you know, coming and going. So you can use that money for whatever you need. We don't dictate it, right? So if you get a cheap plane ticket, like you just have that extra money. And then for international artists, we do more reimbursements versus the $1,000, depending on their visa issue. Um, so that's always something that just have to individually meet with each of the artists. Some some artists have are international, but they have a visa to work in the U.S. so we can pay them. Some we just have to sort of reimburse for you know food and certain expenses. And that's just how we've been doing it because we can't afford to get a visa for every single international artist that comes here. It's just, it's a lot logistically. So that's kind of what we've been, what we've been working with, but basically you can get reimbursed for up to a thousand dollars per month. So then it sort of helps offset things. And then, yeah, when you, when you arrive, you know, we ask everybody to basically arrive on the same day. We usually have a big sort of like welcome lunch and orientation. So you get to see all the spaces, you meet all the staff and then we do about a, a week or so of tours around Omaha. So you, we go to all of our different partners that we have relationships with, the Union for Contemporary Art, which is in North Omaha, that has like printmaking and photography studio, and a, a, also a larger ceramics. They have a different ceramics firing kiln situation. So you can go there if you want to do something more specific. So they have access to that. We work with the Metro Community College. Um, where they have a fabric digital fabrication lab. We take them to, obviously, the different cultural institutions. There's University of Nebraska at Omaha's. There's a library outpost right across the street at Kaneko, which is our sort of our neighboring organization. That's another uh, art space. So the artists have access to the university library system so they can check out books. There's so many partnerships, I can't even like think of all of them. But we sort of do that for the first like few weeks. You know, not not every hour is scheduled, of course, but then really your time is your own. We, of course, are always here, you know, not 24 hours a day, but for the most part, you know, Nick is our, our arts technician. So he'll actually do demonstrations on certain skills. So, so we call them skill building demos. So those happen, you know, throughout the residency, mostly in the, in the sort of front end 
of things, but residents can ask, oh, I want to learn a framing demo and we have a frame shop that rents space from us. So we work with them or, you know, mold making or how to build a pedestal or crate, you know, all of these things are sort of things that we're happy to, to teach. We might bring in people over the summer since we did more of a virtual residency. We had animation demo, which was really great. And then Andy, who's now our new sound tech, did an Ableton Live demo. So people to learn about sound, which is a new part of the residency. So yeah, it's been, um, you know, lots of things. And then we, of course, have like exhibitions happening and artists in town. And we organize studio visits with local curators and panelists when they're in town and myself as well. So yeah, there's lots of there's lots of things happening. But of course, you can opt out of everything and just focus on what you need to focus on. So it's really kind of your time is your own. And you can, you know, you can choose what you want to participate in. What about families like our spouses and or children able to be accommodated or not? You can have visitors. I think we try to keep it to like five days maximum. But um, at the at this time, we can't allow children like in the studios upstairs. It's something that we're anticipating doing a renovation and having a family-friendly residency space that's a little bit bigger so that you can bring your family here. And that's a goal of mine. And so we're kind of in the midst of thinking about that and um, looking for some funding for that, of course. Which lends perfectly to my next mm. question, which is everything you all do is astounding love it all the partnerships all the everything like it's amazing how is bemis funded bemis is funded through grants from obviously like government grants the national endowment for the arts the nebraska C cultural association so basically federal state and local grants douglas county the county that we're in we have membership to bemis so there's sort of individual donations membership obviously corporate sponsors as well, and then grants from other, you know, private foundations. So amazingly, lots of local foundations here in Omaha, as well as, you know, throughout the Midwest and nationally, we've got, you know, the Warhol Foundation has funded us repeatedly. You know, Omaha Steaks is a big sponsor of ours. I was so going to make a joke about them. That's great. Mm. It's good to know. Um, the, the, I, I actually think one of the, one of the Omaha Steaks presidents is on our board and he's wonderful. So and then I'm not going to make any jokes yeah. about Omaha Steaks. Well, you know, I mean, we do live in Omaha, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, so it's, it's the go-to thing yeah, for it's, Omaha. It's, you know what? They're pretty delicious if you're, if you're a carnivore. Somebody gave me like their steak of the month thing when I was younger and like, it was amazing. Yeah, I no, loved it's amazing. it. Yeah. yeah was, I'm no, I'm not joking in a bad <laughs> joking that's yeah all. yeah very, very good steaks very good steaks yeah so it's it's sort of a smattering i think like any sort of mid-sized nonprofit. you know we do not charge for any events except for our fundraiser so everything is free for you know all to participate in that way and of course we appreciate any donation that we get very helpful all right are there any questions that you always wish people would ask you that they never do? Oh, that's a good question. Like things you want to talk about, but nobody ever asks you about. Hmm. I'm trying to, I'm like, that's a good question. I feel like you've stumped me. That's my job. Yeah. <laughs> I guess 
you know, I really like to just promote and talk about what's actually happening in our building. I think because, especially with our local community and a more regional community, even though we've been here for 40 years and have done a ton in terms of bringing contemporary art to the Omaha community, you know, people are still like, I don't really know what, what you are, you know? And of course, like the city is constantly changing with people moving in and moving out and, you know, new faces and things like that. So I think, you know, it's something that we continually like strive to promote that, you know, we're, we're working with cutting edge contemporary artists that our programming is free, you know, that we're really interested in partnerships with local organizations across the board, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be arts related and, you know, really trying to connect our residents if they want with people in the community. So it's, you know, it's, it's more like, I'm just always hoping that people understand that this is a huge asset to living in Omaha, having this residency here. I know that the artists that come here, both the ones that are exhibiting and the ones that are residents, as you've mentioned, you've had friends that have come through the program, like can't, can't speak more highly about it. And of course, that's something that I like continue to want to promote is that this is such a great opportunity and amazing, unique opportunity you know, so many residencies are actually like out in the woods, right? Which is great. I mean, I would love to be out in the woods for a couple of months too. You know, this is a different kind of place where you're, we're in downtown Omaha in the old market, which is sort of this historic district, you know, like there's cobblestone streets and brick buildings and it's really beautiful. And then, you know, you have the city around you and then you can be like out in the country very easily, right? You know, you can drive 30 minutes and you're basically in rural Nebraska or Iowa, since we're right on the border there. But, you know, it's it's a different kind of residency um, and a different kind of space. But as I kind of mentioned, there's sort of a magic about this building. And it's really at its full potential when we have like an open studios and you can really like see the studios, see what the artists have been doing, talk with them about their work, hear like connections that you might have with their work. And that's important to me. When I think about artist residencies, one thing I always concerned about is, is like, I'm a little bit of a uh, fetishist about materials. Mm. And so like, if I go to a, a distant residency, the question is like, should I bring my own materials or should I have them shipped there? Or are they going to be available there? That's sort of the the incoming question on this. But the outgoing is, is I did a residency one time and I didn't budget in for the fact that I was going to have to ship the work back at the end and then theoretically store it also when it came back. So like, that's something I think a lot of people need to take into consideration when they say, oh, great, Bemis, I'm going to work big. Like, you've got to ship whatever that is back and store it in your small studio, even though you made it in a big studio. So, like, so, you know, do people bring materials or, or are there great resources for materials there in Omaha? Or, and then, you know, what do they, what should they take into consideration with the sort of leaving and, and shipping their work back as well? You know, those are great questions. People do, you know, of course, if you have something really specific that you work with, I think it's always good to at least bring bring it at first. So, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you can always order it, right? I mean, it's very easy to get things here delivered. But, you know, if you can only get something from this one paper supplier and they don't ship, you know, and you can get it before you get here, I would just bring it with you. But so, yeah, so, you know, but there, we do have a lot of different places that have amazing things. And also if you're, if you're an artist that really does a lot of sort of salvaging and like thrifting, like this is such a great place for that. We have an amazing thrift, like 
I was going to say thrift world and that's a really good thrift store here, but like world of thrifting. <laughs> thrifting Obviously, opportunities. Opportunities, ab- abundance, and really like a few within walking distance of Bemis. So that's- I'm really sure good. antiquing is probably very good there as well. Yes. There's a lot of great- My neighbor across the street owns Junk and Treasure, which I really love the name of that store. So- you know, yeah, you can you can kind of do both things. I would say if it's something really, really specific and there's only like a certain way to get it, then bring it with you. We actually had someone bring their own 3D printer because they were working on a very big like public art project that, you know, they were printing and they were able to purchase it with the money that they got for that. So he just brought it with him. So I was like, okay. And then in terms of, yes, when you build big, having a plan for that, right? So it might be that you actually, you know, some people have destroyed things. You know, they've, they've brought it, they've made it here, documented it here, and then destroyed it. Sometimes it goes right to a show. So then that's always helpful, right? Depending on, we love you very much, but we can't keep everything here that you've made. So it's really like, you know, if it needs to stay here for a week, because it's going to get shipped out in a week, that's one thing. But if, you know, we can't keep it for years at a time. And of course, you know, that always happens. And we're actually slowly like cleaning things out and making sure that as we're trying to think about a facility master plan for some of our, you know, space. And as we're growing as an organization, finding old things that have been here for quite some time and, you know, it's kind of fun, but at the same time, it's like, oh, wait, like, when was that person supposed to get that? You know, oh, it's been 20 years. So (laughs) yes, thinking about that, budgeting for that, you know, we have had people just leave here in big budget rental trucks with their things. So it's just, yeah, that's what happens, of course. I hope that people visit us and follow us. Our, you know, our social media is very active. So I think it's a really good way to learn more about Bemis, what is happening here and what our alumni are doing. We really like to highlight our alumni, as I said. We are going to be launching a new website in the next like four months. So that's really exciting because our website is a little old vintage. It's vintage good to say so, I teach web design so yes it is yes you know it's it's been years in the making of having a new one so we're really excited to um, actually be rebranding refreshing our brand we should say we're not like changing our name or anything like that but so we'll have a new logo new website we're working with this great design firm called studio look that's based in Asheville North Carolina and so that'll be happening in a few months. And so our, our website will just be so much easier to navigate and, and you know, see what's happening here and find opportunities. And then, yeah, just sign up for our, for our email list. That's always, you know, really good because then you'll, you'll know when applications are due. So we've just closed the applications for fall of 2021 and our alumni residency for next year. So we will reopen applications for spring and summer of 2022 in January. So there's a little bit of time. And then those are not due until like, I think end of April or something like that. Okay. I do have another question because like I currently live in Europe though. I'm an mm-hmm. American and I hear a lot of Europeans who talk about like that they do two and three residencies a year. And that mm-hmm. they're like, this is sort of how they find time out of their busy lives to be able to continually produce their art. So my question is sort of, I get the feeling that there's sort of this, once you get one residency, it then sort of steamrolls into another sort of snowballs on. So like when you, once you get one, then it's easy to get the second, but like Mm -hmm. it's that, it's that first one that's really, really hard to get. So is there, is there some sort of like 
I don't know, sort of snowball effect that, that basically if people have already done residencies that they probably have a sort of better opportunity to get your residency kind of thing. We do have a question that says, you know, I think it's the last question on our application in a certain part that is, you know, please list former residencies that you've had, just so we know. I think it it helps. It helps us as a staff and it also helps the jurors like understand, oh, this person is like on the circuit, right? Which is fine, you know, like that it is a it is a way um, to be an artist. And I think it's a really great way to be an artist because you get to again like have this time and space, meet all of these really interesting people. So, you know, I think we had artists last fall, Guy and Marcos, who were, you know, they did Art Oh My together like four years prior and then they were here together. And, you know, it's sort of like nice that that happens. But I agree with you. There is sort of something about getting that first one. And I know we've been that first one for a lot of people, which is really like super special when that happens, I think. But yeah, you know, it's totally, it totally depends. We don't necessarily like, okay, they've never had a residency. So we're, we're not going to accept them this year because they're, you know, they're not there yet. Or it's like, it's really based on their work, I think, and their application. Um, And that's sort of a secondary thing for us to know, like, okay, you know, they've done one before, so they kind of understand, but it was a rural one, right? That they were in a cabin in the woods. So this is going to be definitely different for them. Or they've done Lower Manhattan Cultural Council where they had like a studio space, but they didn't live there, you know? So it's sort of, you know, it's definitely every residency is a little bit different, but yeah, it, you know, we usually have a mix. We usually have a mix of people that have done a lot over, you know, several years. And then maybe some that have done like one before, or, you know, this might be their first one. So which is important also for us to like have like, you know, oh yes, like we know that this is gonna be the first one for this person and the 10th one for this person. And so there might be a nice like mentorship that happens there in terms of if that person is really interested in continuing to do residencies. It's also, you know, it is really difficult to be away for three months from your life. You know, we have two three month sessions and a two month session. So depending on what you do, you know. It sounds magical. Granted, of course, I would also love to do that. You know, I'm always like, can I do my own Bemis residency? Which I sort of did this summer. I I took over one of our studios to do some work in (laughs) because it was hard to get work done at home, you know, being, you know, with my family there. So I totally, you know, get it. But of course it is, you know, so it's really like applying for it and being able, knowing that you'll be able to take that time off or take that time away really dedicate it. So that's definitely something to consider because yeah, three months is three months is definitely a long time. Two months I think goes by really quick. So it's really hard to to decide, you know, what you can do. But I think a lot of people are able to do the fall residency, the two month one if they're a teacher, because they can, you know, either take the semester off or, you know, even now we have some people that might just be teaching virtually while they're here in January, which is fine. Your time is your own. Sounds absolutely magical to me. It's pretty great. So hopefully you can come visit us. I hope so as well. Yes, I will be sure to try to apply, though it's still intimidating. Understandable. I think it always is. <laughs> Fair enough. Been lovely. Yes, thank you thank very you much, so much. For, Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. I'm always happy to talk about Bemis. I have one last question. Mm-hmm that I generally ask everybody in the beginning, but I forgot to ask it until now. So there you go. Um, 
how did you get to be in the creative industries? So like, what was your upbringing? So was it your parents were creative, some teachers, some experience? So like, how did you even get into this creative fields? My parents are not creative. They, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a doctor. So the sort of opposite end of that, my grandparents on my dad's side were, they were also a nurse and a doctor, but on the side they were antique dealers. So they always appreciated art. And I grew up outside New York city. So I had a lot of access to amazing like cultural institutions and arts were, were a big focus. I was very lucky to have that in, in school. And even though my mom was not really versed in it. She really liked always taking me to museums and, you know, making sure I was signed up for like Saturday art classes and things like that. So, you know, she always said I was her most creative child, but my brother is a poet and he's amazing. And my younger sister is also a wonderful writer. And my older, oldest brother is an unbelievable photographer. So it's kind of funny that most of my parents' kids are like super creative. Yeah, I went to boarding school for high school and really fell into photography there. So we have sort of an affinity. Um, I had a really wonderful photography teacher, Deborah, and I'm totally like blanking on her last name, which is really unfortunate. But she really inspired me, and I ended up applying for art school and went to SAIC in Chicago for undergrad for photography. And while I was there, that kind of, first of all, I just fell in love with that city and like, what that city has to offer in terms of arts. That's not New York, you know? Oh, it's a great school too. It's a great school. It had amazing faculty and obviously, you know, students that were, you know, classmates, many of who I'm still in touch with and who I work with. And that also has a great alumni network. And even my boss actually was, he did his master's there as well. And so, you know, that my time there I was like, I'm actually not an artist. <laughs> I really like taking photos, but you know, I had a, actually a hard time kind of being an artist there. But I started working, took a class about running the student galleries, and worked with this amazing professor, Michael X. Ryan, who's still teaching there. And so he had sort of taught this class and was the faculty advisor for the galleries. And I fell right into that. And that just immediately blew my mind and just was like, oh. I'm supposed to be this, you know, I'm supposed to be the curator and like putting together things and talking about the work and writing about it and not necessarily making it. And so I think it actually ended up helping in my visual practice. And I was very happy with like with what I did for like my last few years in terms of my artwork. But afterwards, I started a gallery with a friend of mine, Lloyd Dobler Gallery, sort of an artist run. We space, you know, someone just reached out to me about that. And they were like, was it an artist run space? And I was like, well, I wasn't really an artist, but Trish was a painter at the time. So I guess sort of an artist run space, but wait, I'm sorry, just to be clear, you said the Lloyd Dobler gallery, correct? Yeah. Excellent. You understand Love the it. reference. <laughs> Absolutely. I am a child of the eighties. Yes. yes. I, know, I know the reference to say anything. We thought it was silly that people named their galleries after themselves. We we're like, that's so, you know, pretentious. Barbara Gladstone, and you know, of course, now I'm like, oh, you know, that's not a big deal. But we thought it was funny. We were, you know, young college kids. And so we decided to name it after Chicago's best boyfriend, basically, you know, John Cusack's character. <laughs> Still love the movie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that sort of led me into, you know, really making shows and it's funny you say that. I actually was the coordinator for the Diego Rivera Gallery at the Art Institute. Oh, right. Nice. When I was there. Yeah. 
Yes, I worked at the Walter McBean. I remember it. Yes. Yeah, which was such an amazing space. And I always wanted to curate a show there. And now I have no idea what's going to happen with that space, but maybe one day. It is a beautiful space. Yeah, so that really, you know, that running that gallery with Trish. I worked at the Arts Club of Chicago for a year as well, sort of as their like admin and kind of like semi-curatorial assistant and just really like immersing myself in um, exhibition making and, and reading about it and then applying to SFAI. Cause I had a friend who was in their first, the first year of their program that he went there and he was like, this is what you want to do also. So that was really like at the beginning of all these curatorial master's programs. I mean, Bard was, you know, sort of one of the oldest ones. And then CCA in San Francisco is the other one, which I, I applied to both, but I decided to go to SFAI because of, at that time, Oakley was the dean and Hu Hanru was the director of the program. And those two curators are unbelievable, you know, rest in peace, Oakley. And he was so wonderful, but I really wanted to learn from them. I was really interested in exhibition making specifically and, you know, thought that they would be the people that wanted to follow in their footsteps in a way. So now I'm here. <laughs> Lovely. You're just making me feel old because all, <laughs> all of these things happened at SFAI after I graduated. So, yeah. well, and there's so many things have, you know, have happened since I've graduated. So yes, anyway. rather traumatic. Yes. I, I, I have yeah. the luck that, uh, both of my both my my BFA is from the Corcoran, and mm-hmm. the Corcoran doesn't exist anymore. Right, it's been swallowed up. And that my master's is from San Francisco Art Institute, which also might not exist anymore. So, like I used to look really good on paper, but <laughs> now I'm not sure my CV is going to be that great anymore. I have nothing Love. but failed schools on my my resume. Yeah, I you know unfortunately this world is like changing so much and it's very unfortunate about the Corcoran, I think, you know? Oh no, it continues to exist. It was just taken over by George Washington. Right. Right. So it's still around, but I think, you know, I think SFAI will, will pull out of it. You know, hopefully it's just, of course this happens and you know, when COVID is happening. So they're, well, they're going to end up probably much like the Corcoran finding some university or college that basically will sort of take them on as a, as a department or a, yeah. you know, a college within the university kind of thing. I'm sure that that's the only way that they can fund that pr- appropriately. Yeah, I think so. I think that was the plan and then it fell through, but maybe there'll be someone else that'll come, come around the corner anyway. Yeah. So that's sort of my story. The beginnings of my story, I should say. Yeah, I was going to say, you're young. You still have a lot ahead of you. Well, it's every day is fun, so I feel very lucky. Marvelous. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is really fun, and yeah, I'm. I'm. I need to dive into your your other podcast. So. 